0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardhan Ganaria and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Who Wants to Live Forever? Early Ayurvedic Medicine. At the beginning of his Samkhya Karika, Ishvara Krishna speaks of a threefold suffering, that his teaching aims to dispel. Like any self-respecting author of a foundational text in Indian philosophy, he doesn't bother to tell us exactly what he means, but like any self-respecting commentator, Gaudapada hastens to explain. Suffering is threefold because its cause may be internal, external, or divine. Internal suffering, in turn, has two forms, bodily and mental, After our discussion of Samkhya, we have a pretty good idea of where mental suffering comes from. It is the inevitable anguish arising from ignorance about the nature of the true self. But what about bodily suffering? This, says Gautapada, is caused by the disordering of three substances within the body, namely wind, bile, and phlegm. So, here we have a threefold enumeration, illustrating the first of two aspects of the first item within another threefold enumeration. Yes, this is Samkhya, all right. But the idea that bodily disease is caused by wind, bile, and phlegm would be familiar to Gaudapada's readers from another Indian tradition, Ayurveda. Unlike Samkhya, Ayurveda is still the name to conjure with. It is practiced across the English-speaking world as a kind of so-called alternative medicine. It also continues to play a role in India itself, where ancient ideas are combined with more recent medical theories to form what is sometimes called modern Ayurveda. But in this episode, we'll be looking at a version of Ayurveda that is anything but modern. The oldest medical texts of the tradition go back to the early centuries AD. The oldest complete surviving treatise is called the Charaka Samhita, the name alluding to its author, or rather compiler, a man named Charaka. If you are following the History of India podcast, which you really should be, you may recall stories about a king named Kanishka and his three close companions and advisors. One of those advisors was a doctor, none other than this Charaka. According to the testimony of the text itself, Charaka is passing on wisdom first handed down by the gods to the mythical Ashvins, who are also mentioned in the Mahabharata. Their medical teaching eventually passed to Atreya, a sage who is often quoted in the Charaka Samhita. It's thought that Charaka himself wrote around 300 AD, with the surviving redaction of his text produced around 500 AD. Apart from the Charaka Samhita, we have some other very old medical treatises, including one that focuses especially on surgical techniques called the Sushustra Samhita. After all the talk we've had of fulfilling one's dharma, of achieving liberation from suffering and worldly existence, of trying to grasp one's identity with Brahman, it's somewhat refreshing to find that Ayurveda has the more straightforward goal of prolonging your life. Indeed, this is what Ayurveda means, knowledge of longevity. Charaka makes no apologies for this relatively modest aim. He freely admits that a long life is not the only worthwhile thing. One may also seek wealth, and seek to secure a good fate after death. But to pursue these goals, one first needs to remain healthy for as long as possible in this present life. As Charaka puts it, when life is lost, everything is lost. This is not to say that the doctor's theoretical goal is to secure immortality. Ayurveda recognizes that each person has a proper limited lifespan. This explains why even the best doctor cannot prolong the life of some patients and why it may be pointless even to try. In the Indian context, though, there was good reason to think that doctors cannot extend lifespan at all. If you believe in karma, you might think that everyone's lifespan is preordained at the moment of birth. It's a familiar problem, one that obviously confronts any fatalist worldview. Just think of the ancient Greek Stoics, who were thoroughgoing determinists they had to answer the so-called lazy argument, namely that a Stoic would have no reason to go to the doctor, since if he is fated to die from his illness, then he will surely die, whether or not he gets medical treatment, but if he is fated to live, then such treatment will be unnecessary. Confronting his own version of the problem, Charaka quotes the sage Atreya, saying that lifespan is not simply fated by karma, but rather determined by several factors. For one thing, there is more than one kind of karma, since our fate is affected by what we did in previous lives, but also what we do now. And sometimes even the combined karma has only a weak influence so that our actions can change the outcome. Clearly our lifespan cannot be entirely predetermined. If it were, then never mind not going to the doctor, you wouldn't even bother to avoid stepping off cliffs. Still, The good physician is not out to prolong your life indefinitely, he just wants to get you to the right time for death, much as the axle of a chariot is meant to wear out after a certain time and no earlier. This issue illustrates a running theme in early Ayurveda, namely a tension between its naturalist and scientific outlook and older cultural beliefs that are retained in the texts. Examples are littered throughout both the Charaka Samhita and the Sushustra Samhita. Invasive diseases are caused by poor judgment and bad hygiene, including those diseases brought on by demons. Wind or breath is both a fundamental constituent of the body and a divine force that causes all things. Speaking as an identical twin, I am particularly fond of a passage which explains that differences between twins are caused by both karma and an unequal distribution of blood and generative seed. It's tempting to praise the medical authors for their more naturalist, scientific proposals while deploring their inability or unwillingness to abandon religious ways of thought. But we should do them the courtesy of realizing that there could be a well thought out synthesis here, not only a tension between the old fashioned and the new fangled. In favor of this more generous interpretation, we offer a passage from early in the Charaka Samhita, which entertains a skeptical objection to the third of Charaka's goals, the favorable afterlife. To someone who doubts that we do in fact live on after death, Charaka invokes the sort of epistemological theory we often find in Indian philosophical literature. He recognizes four methods of knowing, or pramanas, authority, perception, inference, and reasoning. All four testify that we may be reborn after past lives. Most obviously, Vedic authority says so. But perception too confirms it by noting that people don't always take after their parents and must therefore have some other source. The same ways of knowing are of course used in medicine itself. Great weight is placed on authoritative testimony given that the ayurvedic teaching is supposed to have come ultimately from the gods themselves. Charaka also works with theoretical premises that are clearly the result of inference and reasoning. We'll explore these more fully in a moment. But of the four pramanas, the most important may be perception. Ayurveda stresses the use of the senses, especially in diagnostics. According to Sushustra, we should examine a patient by using all five senses and also by asking questions, what would nowadays be called taking a medical history. The Sushustra Samhita also has plenty of concrete advice for trainee surgeons. Before cutting up human bodies, first learn the technique by practicing with melons, gourds, hunks of meat, and other items similar to the various parts of the body. Practical experience also allows physicians to proceed despite the infinite variety in the conditions of patients. No one can teach you what to do in every case, you must learn by doing. Yet Ayurveda combines this sort of hands on approach with speculative reasoning about the human body neither theory nor practical experience suffices on its own. To use only one would be like a bird trying to fly with one wing. A good doctor must understand the principles that give rise to the human body and that influence the constitution and health of each individual body. As it unfolds this theoretical basis for medicine, the Ayurvedic texts allude to something like the cosmological theory we saw last time in Samkhya, according to which there are five elements, namely ether, wind, earth, fire, and water. Our bodies are ultimately composed from these elements, and so is our food. In a manner also reminiscent of Samkhya, different foods are classified in accordance with six flavors, namely sweet, sour, salty, bitter, pungent, and astringent. The doctor needs to know the characteristics of foods, since a buildup of harmful humors in the body can be combated by eating something with an opposing nature. Suffering from an excess of wind? Then eat a sweet, sour, or salty dish. Or perhaps something that has all three flavors, like dill pickles with caramel coating. Okay, that might just make you sicker. Once food is digested, it is transformed into so-called rasa, or nutritive juice, which passes into the heart and is then circulated around the body. Alongside these ideas about elemental composition, there is the notion that wind, or breath, is a fundamental principle of the body. Again, this is a point of agreement between our Ayurvedic texts and older works, like the Upanishads. If you look at summaries of the ancient medical theory, you'll often see wind listed as simply one among three bodily humors, alongside the aforementioned bile and phlegm. But this is somewhat misleading and in numerous ways. In fact, taking our inspiration from Samkhya, let us count the ways. First, bile and phlegm are opposed to each other, with wind playing a more fundamental and leading role, perhaps because of its prominence in Vedic literature. Second, in some passages, blood is treated as if it were another of the humors. It is a chief product of nutrition, and when processed in the body over the course of a month, turns into menstrual blood in women and semen in men. Blood can also cause disease when it is corrupted or in excess, which is why doctors should practice bloodletting. So Schustra goes so far as to remark that blood is life, a maxim still endorsed today by cardiologists and vampires. Third, and most importantly, it isn't clear that wind, bile, and phlegm are really humors, as we would understand that term in the context of ancient European medicine. There, the four humors were said to be blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm, which certainly looks like a similar list. However, authors like Galen understood the humors as constitutive substances that need to be in qualitative balance. Our language today actually preserves the theory, as when we speak of someone being melancholic, literally meaning characterized by black bile, in Greek, melaina chole. In the Indian context, by contrast, these three substances called dosas are initially conceived solely as sources of disease. In the earliest references to the theory, which comes long before the two Ayurvedic samitas, there is no talk of getting them to be in balance; only of eliminating them, or at least keeping them from being riled. Because it is when they are stirred up that they cause illness. If you want to understand how the dosas were understood in early India, a better parallel than the science of ancient Greece might be the folk medicine of modern-day Italy. There, you may be afflicted by a so-called colpo d'aria, the dreaded blast of air that will likely lead to a sick day off work, assuming you aren't already on strike. Which leads us naturally on to the working conditions of the ancient Indian doctor. Though this topic isn't addressed head on by Charaka or Sushustra, they do incidentally give us quite a bit of information. For starters, it would seem that high born doctors, that is, those of the Brahman or Kshatriya castes, may have practiced medicine on a charitable basis, whereas Vaishya doctors presumably received payment. There was a formalized process by which students would attach themselves to masters, and once trained, they would adopt a distinctive outfit. Sushustra says that the physician should dress in white and carry an umbrella and a stick. Both he and Charaka emphasize that moral probity is of the utmost importance in practicing medicine. The patient must trust the doctor and the doctor must earn this trust, though he need not be above the occasional deception, as when he withholds the news that a patient doesn't have long to live, or hides the fact that a medicine involves the meat of animals that aren't usually on the menu. Yes, the medical texts do prescribe the consumption of meat and even the drinking of blood as a form of treatment. The oldest texts treat this as a matter of course, but later commentators are made nervous by the departure from the strictures of non-violence. One offers the excuse that in medicine we are pursuing health, not dharma. Nor is this the only place where Charaka and Sushustra seem remarkably uninterested by what we might call medical ethics. Charaka helpfully provides a list of patients that a wise doctor will not attempt to cure. We've already seen that this will include those who have an incurable terminal illness, though he does accept that a doctor can manage an incurable chronic ailment. The list also mentions that poor people shouldn't be treated, which is rather shocking, until you realize that he may mean the patient cannot afford to buy the medicines needed for the treatment, as could have been customary. More admirably, Sushustra suggests that doctors who collect fees should waive them for a poor patient. Finally, one shouldn't bother trying to treat very wicked patients, like those who actively enjoy wrongdoing. This isn't a form of punishment, rather it is like the injunction against treating the untreatable. The undertaking would be doomed to failure, which will harm the doctor's reputation. Why, though, should a patient's wickedness make any difference to his or her prognosis? Because diseases are actually caused by bad character and bad judgment. We saw Charaka claiming that all diseases caused by external factors, including demons, are brought on by ethical failings. An apparent exception would be epidemics, such as a plague. Charaka himself, or his sources, noticed the difficulty he includes a passage in which the wise medical man Atreya explains the causes of epidemics. Given the emphasis on individual constitution in Ayurveda, it seems strange that a huge number of people may be struck by the same illness all at once. But this can be explained by other peculiar factors like corruption of the air or water in the place where the victims live this doesn't seem to fit with a moralist medical outlook which would link health to good character and disease to bad character. Are we really meant to believe that everyone in a plague-ridden city just ate the wrong foods and indulged in debauched behavior? Not quite. Atreya instead says that epidemics are brought on by wicked political rulers. It is their evil deeds that cause their lands to be abandoned by the gods and thus afflicted by adverse weather conditions." By now it should be clear that ancient Ayurvedic texts are remarkably sophisticated. We have dealt only with the oldest preserved literature, yet we've seen explorations of good medical practice, explanations of disease at the moral, physical, and religious levels, and a theory of knowledge that explains how medical understanding can be acquired in the first place. Of course, all this did not come out of the blue. It's evident from the Samitas themselves that they are drawing on and quoting earlier authorities, But can we trace the story back even further? Charaka and Sushustra are at pains to associate themselves with the authority of Vedic religion. There's that story about their medical art being passed down from the gods, and they make liberal use of terminology and ideas from Vedic culture. Even the word Ayurveda itself is found for the first time in the Mahabharata. But is that culture really the ultimate source of their thought? the Vedas do not develop medical theory with anything like the complexity of Charaka and Sushustra. To take one example, Sushustra's discussions of surgery display a formidable understanding of anatomy, whereas the scattered references to anatomy in the Vedas seem more like chance observations made in the context of animal sacrifice. More generally, Vedic prescriptions for curing illness tend to involve magic and religious ritual, not diet, drugs, or surgery. Instead, it has been suggested that Ayurveda grew out of a very different part of Indian culture. It may have emerged from the ascetic shramana movements that dissented from the Vedic mainstream, and in particular from Buddhism. One reason to suspect this is that in classical Brahminical culture, physicians were likely seen as impure because of the physical contact they had with a wide range of people. As a result, medical men were likely to be itinerant healers, rather than the respected aristocrats portrayed by Charaka. An interesting hint in this direction is that the name Charaka actually means someone who wanders. It's also mentioned that medical students should roam freely offering medical services following their training. So, perhaps early doctors had a touch of the vagabond about them. This would have made them natural bedfellows of the supreme social outsiders of the Shramana tradition, and in particular of the Buddhists. This is pretty speculative, but might be confirmed by allusions to medicine in the Buddhist texts themselves. The Pali canon tells us that the Buddha instructed monks to nurse one another and allowed them to keep medicine. In one passage, he is quoted to the effect that illnesses are caused by excess of wind, phlegm, or bile, and in some cases by sanipatika, which means a harmful combination of several humors. This is in fact a highly technical term of medical art. A contemporary expert has said it would be as if the Buddha blamed illness on hemoglobin levels. And it makes sense that the Buddhists could have been medical pioneers, even leaving aside the idea that doctors would have been disdained by the Brahman elite. Buddhism is all about the avoidance of suffering just as the Buddha's middle way discouraged extreme asceticism, it would have encouraged the elimination of distracting and painful illnesses. Also, the Buddhists were exhorted to reflect on the transience of physical existence and to contemplate dying bodies. In one passage that makes the point nicely, the Buddha enumerates the parts that make up the human body. Hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, Kidney, heart, liver, pleura, spleen, lungs, bowels, intestines, stomach, excrement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, and urine. It's quite a list, isn't it? Samkhya, eat your heart out. And also your liver and spleen. Of course, the Ayurvedic authors themselves give no sign of Buddhist allegiance. To the contrary, we've seen them emphasizing the Vedic lineage of their art. This may, however, be a Hindu veneer laid over an originally non Vedic body of thought. On the other hand, as long as we're contemplating non Vedic sources, what about the Greek ideas we mentioned earlier in this episode? It's almost irresistible to make comparisons, and perhaps draw historical connections, between Greek and Indian medical theories. There's the theory of humors, for starters. Okay, the Indians had three humors and not four, which aren't even three of the four Greek humors since they didn't include wind. And maybe they aren't really conceived as humors, but rather as pathogens, but still. Or what about the centrality of breath in Ayurveda? This sounds like an idea also found in Greek medical literature, including the Hippocratic text on breaths. The Hippocratics also appeal to local conditions, airs, waters, and places, to explain illnesses, including epidemics. Much later in the Greek tradition, we also have Galen, some of whose ideas would meet with Charaka's approval. The good doctor must assess the condition of each individual patient and master both theory and practice. Here too, though, there is room for doubt. The Sanskrit terminology of the Samhitas is innocent of Greek loanwords, and no scholar has been able to find a smoking gun to prove Greek influence on Indian medicine or vice versa. Appropriately enough, given that smoking and guns are both bad for your health. The parallels are suggestive and intriguing, but that's about all we can say with the current state of research. Nonetheless, we should keep them in the back of our minds when we turn in a future episode to the possible connections between Indian and Greek philosophy. First, though, we're going to make a very different kind of connection. We've seen that Samkhya provides a good background for understanding ancient Indian Ayurveda, elemental theory and a love of enumeration both echo strongly in Shataka. But the tradition most closely tied to Samkhya is a very different one. In this episode, we've seen how to take care of the body. Next time, we'll look after the rest of you, as we move on to the spiritual practices of yoga, here on the History of Philosophy in India.